0: All right. so this morning I'm going to be continuing our teaching series on the book of Romans. And this letter, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, is one of the most comprehensive summaries of the Gospels that you will find in the Bible. If you want to understand God's rescue plan towards humanity, if you want to understand why it's needed, how it was carried out, and the implications and consequences for life then Romans really is a fantastic place to start. It is one of the most comprehensive accounts, as I said. It's had huge influence as a book, as a letter. It's had massive influence, and some would say more so than any other book in the Bible. Again, an influential book. It was reading Romans 1 that a man named Martin Luther, who some of you may have heard of, you may not have heard of. Some of you care, some of you don't care. (laughs) Martin Luther was a man in the 1500s, who really helped reform the church to what it is today. He formed and shaped a lot of the teaching or helped form a lot of the stuff that we believe today and take for granted. The way we do church, the things that are important about the gospel, grace, freedom, free will, all those things Martin Luther fought valiantly for and dedicated his life for. And he said of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, that it was truly the purest gospel again his reference to this being such a a, 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 a comprehensive account of the gospel and in fact it was 400 years later that a man named john wesley who was reading martin luther's commentary on the book of romans this man named john wesley became a christian now some more of you may have heard of john wesley John Wesley was responsible or really the founder of the Methodist Church movement of which we may meet in a building today built by that movement. And so John Wesley was hugely influential as well, and actually he saw and was involved in one of the greatest revivals this country has ever seen, one of the greatest uh, acts of God causing humanity to come to a knowledge of him, repentance of their mistakes and their rebellion, and turn to him. And, and John Wesley was heavily involved in that, saw much of that happen in this country, through Europe, and into the Americas so romans has had a massive influence this letter romans is dripping like a wet sponge with good news it is dripping with the heralded message of the good news of god and we really in this teaching series are wanting to wring it out to squeeze it out to get the goodness out of it that we might have a more fuller understanding of god and that we might have a fuller understanding of ourselves and the nature of and how they go together. Now we heard two weeks ago, or two or three weeks ago, Jez introduced our teaching series uh, looking at Romans 1. And we looked at uh, Paul's comment, his opening, well, his opening comments. And one of the things he says is, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. And so really, if we care about our life, we care about ourselves, if we are thinking about what happens life after death and eternity, then this book really is a great place to start for seeing what Paul believes are the essential ideas of Christianity. Now, seven years ago, uh, actually seven years ago this month, Abby and I moved over to Seaford uh, to be part of this church here, and... It was around that time, or maybe a year or so after that, that we began a teaching series looking at the big objections. We titled it The Big Objections, and really we were delving into and exploring the biggest objections out there to the Christian faith. We wanted to address and to try and answer some of the biggest problems that people have with Christianity, not because we want to vindicate ourselves or prove anyone wrong, more that we genuinely believe, there is a genuine belief, that this gospel really is good news for humanity. That this gospel makes sense of our humanity more than any other philosophy or idea in this world. This gospel that Paul preaches here in the book of Romans, this gospel that we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, this gospel that runs its way through the entirety of this book, this gospel we genuinely believe deals with in a way that nothing else does the problem of evil that we see around us in this world. We believe God has answers for that in this book. We believe it deals with sin or rebellion. We believe it deals with morality. We believe it deals with sex. We believe it deals with family. We believe it deals with life and death in a way that nothing else, no other philosophy or religious idea does. And also that this gospel that Paul preaches here in Romans has been tried and tested for the last two millennia and as i said recently it it has seen greater life change than any other philosophy and actually 2.2 billion people a third or a third of the world's population would claim to be christians i mentioned the big objection series and i mentioned some of those facts really because As I talk this morning, as we explore Romans chapter 2, I believe that what we face is, I believe that Romans 2 faces a number of these major objections to the Christian faith, and it deals with them. See, the the objection series that we ran seven years ago, six years ago, there were a couple of things that came out. One, why would a good God allow such evil in the world? And two, why are Christians so nasty and hypocritical? And I believe Romans 2, the passage that we're going to look at, deals with some of those. As humans, we have a deep understanding and a deep awareness of evil. We have a moral code that is written deep inside us. We have a longing for justice that is deep within the fabric of our nature. We desire that justice will prevail. My boys love the Marvel films. I'm looking across this congregation. I'm not sure so many of you are really into them. But... uh, the Marvel films, the, the, the Avengers uh, and then the DC films, I believe it's like the Justice League and you've got Batman and you've got Superman and the Marvel films you've got Spider-Man and various heroes. They are all fighting for good and fighting for justice. This message that justice must prevail is ingrained deep into our culture, deep into our understanding. And I believe that this book and in particular this passage deals with justice. We'll see that God loves justice and he hates hypocrisy. And as we read through this passage, I want us to have these two headlines in mind. One, that God is just and two, that God is kind. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 2, uh, it's just after the book of Acts, before the book of Corinthians, or if it's easier, just look at the screen. And I shall read from verse 1 it says this Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you, the judge, Sorry, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor and immortality, you'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. That's a big reading. You may feel like that's a heavy reading, that's a lot to take in. There are some big words in there. Paul pulls no punches here, he uses strong language. He says, You have no excuse. And you condemn yourself. And in verse 16 at the end of our reading he speaks of a day when Jesus Christ will judge the secrets of men not just their outward veneer but that which is unseen. That which is hidden. Now I mentioned as I read that we have two points. Uh, And we'll start with the first which is God is just. I thought being that we had such a long passage with so many verses I thought well let's keep the points simple. We'll have two points now God is just is the first. Now just starting with a a little story we all know and love the Cookmere Bridge right? (laughs) The Cookmere Bridge I guess for the purpose of the recording is um, is a bridge with a right of way isn't it? And if you're heading out of Seaford, you have right of way, if you're heading towards Eastbourne. But if you're heading from Eastbourne back towards Seaford, you don't have right of way. Now, this bridge is the bane of my life, and I expect most of us in this room, and many of us are waiting for the day, well, I think there's rumors that float around on Facebook they're going to widen the bridge. And we all get very excited, think, yes, Lord, thank you. Ten years, Ten years I'm told, right. Well, but it's never going to happen, is it? someone's happy with the bridge anyway so this bridge that offers us right away if you're leaving seaford i work in east dean on a thursday and friday which is east of here so i have to go across that bridge and it's my right of way am i right and if i'm leaving seaford towards east dean that bridge it is my right of way yet on a thursday morning these people from eastbourne (laughs) apparently have never read the highway code Who are these people? It's my right-of-way! And yet they're jamming and squeezing through every... Oh, that's appalling. However, on a Friday evening, when I'm coming back to Seaford from these things, I don't care who you are. I don't care anything for the highway code. And for one, I'm driving a white van, so... Rules don't apply. In the previous message, in the previous chapter rather, so chapter one to the chapter we've just read, Paul has addressed a Roman society in which lawlessness is rife. And verse 129 is going to come up on the screen. I just wanted to glance at this because I believe it sets a bit of pretext for what follows in chapter two. So it says this, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. That is this Roman society. Evil, covetousness and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and maliciousness, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless and ruthless and they keep crossing that bridge in front of me. Um, In chapter 2 Paul turns his attention to someone who appears to be quite moral He introduces us to another individual, and this individual he dresses as O-Man. He says to this person, well, no, we're not going to get into what he says to this person, but this person appears to agree with Paul. And really, Paul then spends the next 16 verses rebuking this moral figure. See, we can accuse this person of hypocrisy, and rightly so, and Paul goes on to do that. Now I want to, as we look at this gospel and as we read through that passage in chapter 2, we see the word judgment. Now Paul uses the Greek word for judgment 10 times in those 16 verses. That's a lot. And perhaps as I was reading it through, you're like, okay, there's a lot of judgment coming our way. Uh, See, judgment plays a huge part in Paul's gospel. We can't avoid it. You can't read through that passage and pretend it isn't there. our culture has a funny relationship with judgment see I was actually funny enough I was speaking to Claire on the phone yesterday and she was talking about worship for the coming worship evenings and I was chatting to her and she said oh what are you speaking on tomorrow I said the judgment of God and she went oh fun (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well I guess it's important judgment is important and I'll put it to you this way If you don't have judgment, then you don't get justice. And I said before, we care about justice. And therefore, judgment has to happen. Now, Abs and I have been watching an ITV TV drama um, called A Confession. Anybody show of hands? Anyone else watching that? Two people? Three people? Great. (laughs) It's not particularly popular. Uh, In this... 8 Confession it basically follows the murder of a girl in 2008 called Shana Callahan and it follows the inquiry that follows and the arrest and the conviction of a man called Christopher Halliwell and there are moments in this program when Sean's parents see justice and Christopher is given 25 years for the murder of Sean. but Becky who was another girl murdered by him around that same time or a few years earlier her parents are sitting there, are waiting for justice. The, the police have proven that Christopher murdered her, but for whatever loophole in the system, or perhaps the practices that were involved in getting Christopher to confess to it, they, were, they, weren't, they weren't by the book. And so there's this moment in the, I think it's the last episode Abby and I watched, where this girl's, Becky's parents, feel like we're not gonna get justice. And you can see the pain and the heartache as they think, our daughter deserves justice, we deserve justice, and we are not going to get it. See, the judgment of Christopher Halliwell was a good thing. And Becky did get justice, and that family did get justice, but it's important for us to see that judgment is important, because without it, you don't get justice, so as we read through this passage in chapter two, which was filled with God's judgment on this person, this person, this person, we sit here and we, get, we must answer the question then: Well, who, who does God, who does Paul think will receive God's judgment? Who does God judge? And so Paul seems to divide humanity, our humanity, into two camps. We, ri- we witnessed what Paul has to say about the immoral, that was in chapter one. He says, those who don't care about right or wrong, those whose experience, who, who live for the experience regardless of consequence. Uh, perhaps Christopher Hallowell is in that bracket. And then he turns his attention in chapter 2 to these moral criticizers who pass judgment on the former camp whilst doing the same things in private. Uh, uh, verse 16, I mentioned earlier, it says, God who through Jesus Christ will judge the secrets of men. It is to the moral criticizer in this passage that, that Paul is writing to, and in verse 8, I just want to put verse 8 on the screen, because as I was reading through this this week, this stood out to me. Paul is writing to this person who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. And as I read that sentence, I can certainly put myself in that group. In 1886, a man named Robert Louis Stevenson wrote The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. A show of hands, has anyone read that? Oh, maybe two or three people, great. <laughs> well done. <laughs> so, um, <yeah. laughs> Sorry. Sorry, front row joke. Um, to sum up the book in just a few sentences, which is ambitious, I would just like to say this. Basically, this man named Dr. Jekyll is aware... He is aware that he has within him something that is self-indulgent and immoral. But he sees himself as largely a good person. So he's largely a good person, but he sees aspects of his character that are are self-indulgent and even immoral. And so what he does is he then tries to separate his two natures. So what he does is he devises or creates a potion that separates his two natures and starts taking that. But what he decides or what he discovers is that the alter ego that he has created or that the alter ego that he has now separated and created uh, is becoming quite dangerous and he's fearful, Dr. Jekyll is fearful, that this alter ego ego could even take over. And so he stops taking this potion and decides, you know what, that doesn't work, I'll try something new. And so he starts upon a journey of moral self-improvement or religious self-improvement, and it says this, he recalls it being exhausting finding the strength to keep it up, but resolved that it was fruitful for some good, and then one day he goes for a walk, and he's congratulating himself on these achievements, on his righteousness or his ability to keep to his moral standards, and it says this, it says this, I smiled comparing myself with other men comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at that very moment of the vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. I looked down, my clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs, the hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy, I was once more Edward Hyde. Lewis Stevenson illustrates for us the danger of moralism when we forget that sin is not only committing bad deeds or active rebellion but it is trusting in our own good to make us acceptable before God and when that happens then we are every bit as proud and rebellious as those who Paul describes in verse 1 who practice such things Paul believes that sin isn't just actively rebelling, but it's also trusting in your own righteousness and to gain favour with God, and for that we are all guilty. So we've seen that humanity must face the judgment of God, but surely we in the 21st century can claim ignorance, right? We don't have, if you're not a Christian, perhaps you've never come to church, you've never encountered the Bible or the law of God or... Perhaps you've never grown up in a Christian home. So surely we can claim some sort of ignorance. And I feel like that's a legitimate question. Paul believes that for people like you and I, non-Jewish Gentiles or non-Jewish people, the requirements of the law have been written on our hearts. We see that in verse 15. If you want to put verse 15 up on the screen, I'll read it in a moment. See, we all have, as I said in the beginning, this moral code. This knowledge of right and wrong, of good and evil. And if I'm totally honest with myself, I've fallen short of my own morality. I know that to love is to be better than to be selfish, but for some reason I continue to be selfish. I'll read this. They show, that is the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. You and I will ultimately be betrayed by our own actions and our own choices. We have this moral code written on our hearts and God will judge us by that one day. You and I will ultimately be betrayed by our own thoughts and our own actions. We've tried to live without Him. We have made gods of love and sex and family, idealism and comfort. We've sought our own happiness rather than others. We've abandoned God. We've abandoned relationship with Him. But that is the relationship for which we were designed for. And whether it is plain or hidden, deliberate or in ignorance, (coughs) God is just and therefore He must deal with the rebellion towards Him. Now I feel like it's heavy going (laughs) and just like, wow, God is just. He must judge sin. He must judge rebellion. We are all rebels. We all fall into either the category of immoral or just moral criticizers. We all fall into one of those categories and perhaps you're feeling like, is there hope in all of this? And the good news of the gospel is that there is. And so we reach our second point and it is this, that God is kind verse 3 if we go verse 3 on the screen we'll read through verse 3 so when you a mere human being pass judgment on them and do the same things do you think that you will escape God's judgment or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness forbearance and patience not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance now this verse carries with it some hope and I feel like it's a bit disguised in this rebuke that Paul is having at this man, but it carries with it something profound about God's character, and it's this: that God gives the opportunity to repent. Now we know God must judge sin in order to stay just, but when we see evil going on in around the world and we see it unpunished, it can be easy to come back to the objection this is surely a proof that God doesn't exist in this verse Paul wants us to see that God will judge evil in the world he's not ignoring it sometimes his judgment may feel slow to us or perhaps even like he's not judging at all He's just missing out completely but Paul wants us to see that God's judgment is always kind it is always tolerant and it always is patient He doesn't turn a blind eye to rebellion as we might suppose, but he patiently endures our rebellion because his true desire is for every single one of us to come to know him. God is waiting patiently. In verse 4, it speaks of the riches of his kindness. He's not indecisive. It's not that he hasn't made his mind up, it's not that he hasn't seen what's going on in the world, it's not that he hasn't seen what's going on in the church. It's that he's waiting because his true desire is for every single one of us to turn away from our old self, to turn away from our act of rebellion, to turn away from our hidden rebellion and to come to him and say, Jesus, we need you. God is waiting patiently. and I was, At this point, I was reminded of the story in Luke 15 that Jesus tells of this runaway son and this runaway son basically goes to his father you know the story well it's called the prodigal son he goes to his father and says dad i need your inheritance please i'm off and that's okay here you are son passes the son his inheritance the son does one gets out of there goes to the nearest city squanders his wealth spends it on prostitutes spends it on drunkenness spends it on anything he can just trying to get as far away as he can from his father and ends up moneyless poor working for a man feeding pigs and it says he was so hungry that he ate the feed that was given to the pigs and it's at that point that this man thinks to himself or the son thinks to himself it's you know i should come home because even the slaves in my father's house live better than this and so this, this lad turns home. He starts thinking about his, you know, what am I going to say to my dad? I say, well, let me come as a slave, dad. I'll work in your house. I don't have to be your son. Don't treat me like your son. I'll just be a slave. And it says that his father saw him while he was a long way off. That tells me, one, first of all, that tells me that the father was out looking for him. It says he saw him while he was a long way off. And then he runs to the son. So first of all, the, the father is out looking for the son, and then he, when he sees the son, he runs towards him, arms open wide, and embraces him. Now The father could have sat the son down and said, look, son, uh, we need to talk about this. This can't happen, and it certainly can't happen again. Or he could have disciplined the son, and the son could have groveled and said, look, let me come as a slave. But he says, no. What he does is he throws a party. He celebrates. He says, my son was lost, but now he's found. He's returned home to me. And God the Father is like that. Not only does He give us the opportunity to repent by holding off His judgment long enough that we might look up and see Him, He is then able to satisfy His own need for justice. God Himself was born of a woman, He takes on our humanity. He lived a faultless life so that we might, through faith, inherit his faultlessness or his perfection. In his death, he carries our rebellion on the cross, the consequences of our actions on the cross. He absorbs them. He absorbs the wrath of God that was promised in that chapter. He takes it upon himself. He takes it off us, people who commit and rebel constantly, and carries it on himself. Skipping ahead to chapter, or one chapter, to chapter 3, it says this. It will come up on the screen. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This perfection is given to, through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God holds off His judgment because He is rich in kindness, because He wants you and I to turn to Him. He wants to give space and time for us. God is just and He is merciful. He is just and truly kind. We're going to respond by breaking bread, but as, we're breaking bread, but as we do that, I want to read to you from Romans 8, verse 1. It says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, then you don't have to face God's wrath and His judgment which is justified. No, his judgment has been satisfied in Jesus. God is not angry with you anymore. He's not angry with you. If you turn to him, acknowledge that you have made a mistake, that you have rebelled, that you have put him off as far as you can, it's his kindness that's been waiting, waiting for you. Waiting for you to see him. Waiting for your morality, the stuff that's ingrained deep in here. Say, there must, there is good and evil. Where does this come from? Waiting for you to lift up and say, oh, God, God birthed that in me. God created that in me. That's been in me because he created me to be in his image. God hasn't ignored your sin. God is waiting patiently for you to repent. And when you do, His judgment goes upon Jesus. His judgment for your sin, your rebellion, your mistakes goes upon Jesus and not upon you. You do not have anything to fear. There is now no condemnation for you. God is not angry with you. That's the good news of the gospel. There's good news for each of us this morning. If you wanna stand with me, I'm gonna invite the band back up.